Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. Phenomenology sometimes deserves a reputation for going way off the deep end. But at root, it is the study of phenomena, these being the relations between perceiving subjects and extant objects, activated within a given horizon of awareness. There. Take that home, lather, rinse, repeat, and you may never need to digest anything written by Edmund Husserl, half of Heidegger, or most of Maurice Merleau-Ponty. Successfully digest the concept of phenomenal study into your daily practice, and why Paul Clay called this branch of philosophy out as fundamental to design will become to you as obvious as arithmetic. But is it ever that easy? Understanding the world and other people is difficult. Just knowing thyself is famously nigh impossible. To examine those two areas of awareness, the outer and the inner, and then to synthesize that knowledge into a solution that often takes physical form, is what we call design. The most fundamental variables of design are the agents influencing the design, those who will use the product, and the circumstances within which the product is used. Any inaccuracy in the understanding or function of any of these variables will seriously compromise any project. Because this clear understanding is so important to successful design, phenomenology shouldn't be about complicated language, hermeneutic nuance, or advertising a self-important idea that one can speak about perception and interpretation in a more sophisticated way than others do. It should play the role that much of philosophy does, that of increasing understanding to solve problems. Paul Clay's 1923 essay on phenomenology, The Ways of Nature Study, was a tightly packed synthesis of his Bauhaus lectures. Before we scrutinize the piece, we felt it would be important to emulate that feeling for you. In this episode, we have our own, still evolving, translation of the original work which we are laying out in a facing page copy available to Lapsus members. An English-language publication of this essay as recent as 2013 still relied 
on the efforts of Ralph Mannheim, who garnered praise for his translations of Marxist playwright Bertolt Brecht, but began his career by translating Mein Kampf for a U.S. publisher in 1943. That being said, translation is not only for its own language, but for its own time, subtle as the shifts may be. We began this translation to understand Clay's ideas better in our own minds, and hope this carries over for you. Imagine, for now, being in a lecture room at the old fine arts building, just outside the city walls of Weimar. And even though we suffer the deficit of immediate access to the author and his context, we have the luxury of ninety-some years of perspective and analysis. Our own spin on it? Take as you will. We now present The Ways of Nature Study by Paul Clay. Die Zweisprache mit der Natur bleibt für den Künstler Conditio sine qua non. Der Künstler ist Mensch, selber Natur und ein Stück Natur im Räume der Natur. Es wandelt sich nur je nach der Einstellung des Menschen in Bezug auf The dialogue with nature remains the essential condition of the artist. The artist is human, himself nature, and a part of nature within nature's realm. The dialogue changes itself only as regards the orientation of the human in relation to his reach within this space of the number and type of determined paths, both in production and in the related field of nature study. These paths often appear perhaps without sufficient grounds, to be very new. But it is their combination that is new. They are actually novel in relation to the number and type of earlier paths. To be new in relation to the past is, after all, a revolutionary characteristic, though the grand old earth's not yet thereby shaken. Therefore, the joy at their novelty need not be minimized. The broader historical outlook should keep away from seeking a forced novelty that comes at the expense of naturalness. The type of art confessionals of yesterday and the related study of nature made up what one might well call an embarrassingly differentiated research into the phenomenon. Me and you, the artist and his subject, sought 
relational dynamics in the optical physical path that lies in the layer of air between us. In this way, excellent images were gleaned from the air-filtered surfaces of objects, and thus expanded the art of optical sight, against which the art of observation and visualization remained neglected. However, the achievement of research into phenomena should not be sold short, but merely expanded. This single path does not meet the needs of today. It didn't meet them in earlier times, as there was never only one requirement. Today's artist is more than a refined camera. He is more complex, richer, and more spatialized. He is a creation on the earth and a creation within the whole. That is to say, a creature on one star among stars. This comes step by step to expression, so that in the perception of the natural object, a totalization occurs. Be this object plant, animal, or human, be it in a room of a house, in the landscape, or the wider world. And this totality is expressed so that it primarily employs a more spatial conception of the object itself. The object aggrandizes itself by its outward appearance through our knowledge of its interior, through the knowledge that the thing is more than this visible exterior, man dissects the object and illustrates its interior by section views with the character of the object determining the number and nature of the necessary cuts. This is the visible internalization, partly by means of a simple sharp knife, partly with the help of finer instruments which are able to bring the material structure or material function within clear view. When added together, the experiences thus made enable the self to make decisions from the optical exterior about the objective interior though intuitively, while already on the phenomenon's optical-physical paths of appearance, the self is induced into an emotional judgment, which, depending on the direction taken, can, more or less like branches, elevate the appearance impression to a functional internalization. 
Previously, this occurred anatomically, and now it does so more physiologically. From these types of internalized contemplation of the object comes the following, which lead to a humanization of the object-directed paths, so that through the fundamentals of optics, the self is brought with the object into a resonance relation. First is the non-optical path of earthly rootedness that ascends from below into the self through the eyes. And secondly, the non-optical way of cosmic communality bestowed from above. Metaphysical ways in their union. It should be emphasized that intensive study leads to experience, and that through such study the indicated procedures consolidate and simplify. But here it is illustrative to add that the lower path brings out static shapes through the static field, while the upper path does so through the dynamic field, below, in the center of the earth, in the gravitational way, are the problems of static equilibrium, those to be marked with the words, standing despite all possibilities to fall. To paths above leads the desire to loose yourself from earthly bonds, to overcome and fly into orbit, into free motion. All paths meet in the eye and lead out from their junction, implemented in form for the synthesis of external seeing and inner vision. From this juncture outwards form manual images, which differ from the optical image of an object completely, yet, of course, are not contradictory from the standpoint of the totality. The student has directed himself through self-guided study to the contact he has had with the different paths he has experienced over and beyond the degree, so that his dialogue with natural objects has been achieved. His development in both the observation of nature and the contemplation of it enables him, the more he penetrates into the worldview, the free arrangement of abstract shapes, to acquire a new naturalness beyond any willed-for schematic, 
he creates then a work or involves himself in works which bear resemblance to the works of God. What fascinates us is how the essay's final chord can strike up cries of blasphemy from fundamentalists and faithful atheists alike. Join us as we draw out this essay's section views next time on Lapsus Lima.